This is the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy, independent commentary from a California perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 16, Episode 17. The United Kingdom has a new monarch and prime minister. Talking with Georgina Wright of the Institut Montaigne. On Tuesday, September 6th, Queen Elizabeth appointed Liz Truss prime minister the 15th Prime Minister of her reign. But less than 48 hours later, the Queen had passed away to be succeeded by her son, King Charles III. In the space of a week, the United Kingdom had a new head of state for the first time in 70 years and a new head of government, an unprecedented double switch in short order. What will these momentous changes mean for the United Kingdom? With us, To put it all in perspective is Georgina Wright, Senior Fellow and Director of the Institut Montaigne Europe Program, a Paris-based foreign policy think tank. She joins us from her office in Paris. Hi, Georgina, and welcome back to the show. Hi, Jim. It's great to be back. Georgina, former Soviet leader Vladimir Lenin famously said, and I quote, There are decades where nothing happens. And then there are weeks where decades happen, unquote. Last week's events in the United Kingdom was such a week. What do you make of it? I mean, it has been such a momentous week in the United Kingdom. I mean, we've had weeks now of political campaigning to know who was going to replace Boris Johnson, who was, of course, the last prime minister. We found out it was Liz Truss. She met the Queen and then 48 hours later, the Queen died. And I think for the UK, you know, the last four or five years have felt very unstable. We had the Brexit referendum that obviously completely divided society. Then you had COVID. And now the UK is facing multiple crises. We had lots of um, people going on strike. There's rising energy costs. Um, And now we've got this one pillar of stability, the Queen, who's been there for 70 years, who really was the stability and, and frankly, someone who really managed to unite the country just died. So it has been quite momentous. And and I think it's been a very difficult first week for Liz Truss as well. Let's start with Liz Truss, because the campaign lasted for for months, it seemed. And her opponent in the second round was uh, Rishi Sunak. And and of course, the the vote was among Conservative Party members. She won, I think, by 58 percent and he won. He had 42 percent. What was the primary difference between the two? And what was the essentially what were they offering the members of the Conservative Party in terms of a vision? That's a really good question. And I think before sort of answering it, it's just good to remind people that actually, you know, Liz Truss was elected by Conservative Party members. Now, we estimate Conservative Party members to be around 160,000 in total. Now, not all 160,000 cast their vote. But nonetheless, uh, you know, the new prime minister was determined by a very small uh, number of people in the UK. um, And that's because of the way our political system works. 
Now, during the campaign, because you're right, it did last a long time. And in fact, that was criticised in the UK. People said, is it really the time to be having eight weeks of campaign? Can't you try and shorten it? We've got rising energy costs. We've got lots of problems on the horizon. We've got people on strike. Is this really the moment to have such a long and prolonged campaign? But the Conservative Party decided to do that. And at the beginning, we had 12 candidates, as we discussed on the last podcast. And then we had the final two, which were Liz Truss and and Rishi Sunak. And I think their offer was different because Liz Truss was both able to show that she was very loyal to the Prime Minister. And for many Conservative Party voters, loyalty is very important. She stood with Boris Johnson until the bitter end. Um, And she was both able to say, I am the loyal candidate but I'm also the person for change. So vote for me and I will make things better. And she said things that were very popular with Conservative uh, Party voters. She said she would reduce tax and she said she would reduce national insurance contributions. So there are a number of things that really resonated. And I think she really presented herself as a free market, you know, liberal, which was to a certain extent, many people in the Conservative Party feel the Conservative Party has lost that. Rishi Sunak, on the other hand, uh, resigned from Boris Johnson's government, saying he could no longer uh, support the Prime Minister given all the crisis that was going on. And he was the Chancellor who had introduced those huge measures to support small and medium businesses during COVID. So he was that person who you know, decided to spend a lot of money rather than save a lot of money. So in a way, he was presented as the unloyal candidate and the candidate who was perhaps further away or further removed from that free market liberalism. So that's, I think, the key kind of difference between the two. Now that Liz Truss is the prime minister, she appointed her government last week. Were there? It was a remarkably diverse cabinet in terms of women and people of color. Could you speak to who the main players are, who are chancellor, minister of defense, foreign secretary, Just give us a flavor of what her new administration looks like and how it's different from Boris Johnson's. Yeah, so that's also a very good question. You're you're right to say that it's a very sort of representative or diverse cabinet. It's the most diverse cabinet that we've ever seen. um, And it's certainly something that's been picked up in international press. It's also a cabinet that if you look the people she appointed, and we'll go through them in a minute, they very much represent the right to the right of the Tory party. So the Conservative Party is, you know, a centre-right party in the UK. And these candidates are very much those who, who kind of are to the right of that. In terms of the people she selected, so for the Chancellor, we have um, Kwasi Kwarteng. Kwasi Kwarteng was the former business secretary under Boris Johnson. Um, he is someone who is actually knows quite a lot about the United States. He spent some time, I believe, at Harvard, and he also went uh, to um, Oxford and studied there. And he has promised to reduce significantly taxes while also uh, making sure that there is investment coming into the country. In terms of the foreign secretary, we have uh, James Cleverly. Now, James Cleverly has has occupied a number of positions. In Boris Johnson's government, he was a junior minister in the Foreign Office. So he already knows a little bit uh, about the brief. And prior to that, he was um, sort of head of of the Conservative Party. So um, the parliamentary grouping, that is. Um, And so he sort of is very close. People in the Conservative Party know who he is. He has a lot of trust from the MPs. And he has promised really to 
kind of position the UK in the world, even more um, in the world. So in a way, not just concentrate on the UK's role in, in Europe and providing European security, but also be much more uh, prominent, you know, throughout the Commonwealth, in the Indo-Pacific and stuff like that. And then we have our Home Secretary, Suella Braverman. Suella Braverman was uh, the Attorney General for a bit under Boris Johnson. And prior to that, she's mostly known in the UK for being a junior minister in the Brexit uh, department when that existed. She's quite tough on immigration. She believes there's a problem. And so we'll have to see what she does as, as Home Secretary. So, so those are some of the three kind of key positions. There are many more, of course. Um, Another interesting development with Liz Truss is that she's created the position of security minister within the Home Office. And that's going to be really about kind of bridging the uh, intelligence services and the home security front and thinking about issues like uh, disinformation, cybersecurity, and also, uh, to a certain extent, security concerns around migration as well. So it's quite interesting. And we'll have to see, of course, what her government manages to do. She has about another two and a half years before she needs to call an election. Uh, The last election was in December of 2019. So the next election has to be held by the latest by January of 2025. So that gives her about two and a half years before she has to call an election, right? Absolutely. So the way that the the political system works is we have a a fixed-term parliamentary act, which means that every election has to happen uh, within uh, sort of five years. Um, And now there are two more remaining years in this this sort of current electoral cycle. So she will have to call an an election within the next um, two years. Now, some people were wondering whether she'd anticipate that and whether she'd call for an early election. Boris Johnson did that and Theresa May, who preceded him, also did that. But there are risks with doing so. Um, At the moment, the Labour Party, which is an opposition, is polling 10 points ahead. Mm. Um, So if she were to call an election, there's no guarantee that she would win a majority or actually that she would win any anywhere near as close as a majority that Boris Johnson was able to secure. In her sort of opening speech as Prime Minister, she said that, trust me, I'm going to deliver and I will go on to win an election in the next two years. So I think that sort of assumed that she won't call an early election. But, you know, who knows? We'll have to see. So the next the next two years are going to be kind of a trying time for the United Kingdom. You're right to state that the, the energy crisis and the cost, the rising cost of energy in Britain, as well as in France and throughout Europe, but in this case in uh, in the UK, has been a major political issue. I'm talking to people who are telling me that their, their energy bills are doubling, tripling from month to month. Now, she had said before she became prime minister that she would bring in a freeze on prices. Has that happened yet? of a freeze on energy prices. So it's quite interesting with Liz Trust because during the campaign, she said she wouldn't do what a lot of European governments have done, which is cap the price uh, uh, increase. Um, she said she wouldn't do that uh, and she would present other measures. Now, of course, when she was actually outlining uh, her, her proposal on how to tackle rising energy prices, that's when she found out that the Queen was very ill. And we later found out that on Wednesday that the, that the Queen had died. So actually... 
we're sort of all on tenter hooks. Now there's a, a national mourning period, which is very difficult for the government to present new kind of big lead pieces of legislation. So we'll have to wait a bit longer to find out the details of that. But yes, you're right that one of the things she did say is that she would at least uh, cap the, the, the prices. But it's not entirely clear how. We don't know the details yet, or in fact, how she intends to pay for all of that. So it's a little bit too early to say, but but you're right to say it's a key concern for many Britons. I mean, the fact that their energy bill will double or triple, you have families who are saying, I don't know whether I'll be able both to kind of, whether I'll have enough money to feed my family and uh, keep my house warm. So this is a real and serious crisis. And until you know, in the run up to the election of the new of the new prime minister, um, well, the new the new leader of the Conservative Party, who then became prime minister, you had people who were signing petitions to say, let's stop paying our energy bills. This is a real crisis. And it's going to be the number one challenge of the Liz Trust government in the short term. During the campaign, she famously made a comment about President Macron of France and sort of left the door open, something along the lines of, is he friend or is he foe? I was quite taken aback by that. What Was that a slip of the tongue? And she certainly doesn't seem to have rectified that. What is the status of, of that comment? I, I was a bit surprised by that comment as well. And actually, I watched back the interview and um, she sort of had the, the journalist had been asking for the past 15 minutes a number of, of questions and, and Liz Truss has sort of been uh, responding with humour. So it might have been in that context. But but either way, of course, that, that, that comment did spark a lot of outrage, particularly given the war in Ukraine and that France and the UK are, are natural allies in that. There was a call between President Macron and, and and Liz Truss over the weekend. Um, Mac, the, the French readout is much more positive, saying that they wanted to strengthen relations uh, and that they had a number of joint priorities, whereas the British readout simply said that they had joint priorities and no mention of strengthening relations. I think the difference between Liz Truss and Boris Johnson on this is Boris Johnson is was a francophile you know he spoke french he mm-hmm. he loved france he really believed in franco-british relations and it was no secret that he wanted to strengthen uh, those ties it's not so clear to me that liz trust feels the same way so i guess again we'll have to see what happens over the next couple of months her priority will first be you know responding to to rising energy costs responding to other societal grievances that have led to a number of strikes trying to you know bring more foreign direct investment into the UK and and to skill up the workforce where France fits in all of that uh, remains to be seen but you know I, I'm sort of an eternal optimist and I think <laughs> there might be a window of opportunity we'll just have to wait and see well it's it's always good to be an optimist and especially during these times let's come back to the economy on the one hand the British economy is facing unprecedented inflation, much higher inflation than we're facing here in the United States, number one. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the prospect of recession coming down the road in the next six to 12 months is, is, is pretty strong. So higher inflation and then the prospect of recession. And at the same time, she, during her campaign, talked about tax cuts. Can you give us a sense where those tax cuts stand? Because I guess if you're going into a recession, Reducing the tax burden would be stimulative to the economy, I guess. Where does she stand with regard to those tax cuts? And what do the economists seem to think about the benefit of tax cuts 
as Britain's economy moves into a recession? So I guess it sort of depends which economists you talk to. Um, what's interesting and I think important to remind perhaps, you know, an international audience is that Liz Truss alone does not make these decisions, right? It's, it's a cabinet decision and she has a chancellor who will be first and foremost responsible for, for thinking about, about how you kind of stimulate growth. Now, you're right that during the campaign, she said she would massively reduce corporate tax, uh, any sort of uh, national insurance hike uh, that happened over the past couple of years, she would reduce that as well. And there are a number of economists who said, well, wait, with rising inflation because it's it's highest than it's ever been in the past 40 years. Some economists predict it might rise until 22% mm. in January, which would be which would be very significant. So how are we going to tackle that if at the same time we reduce um, corporate tax and, and other forms of taxes? It's unclear. But I think again, and you know, this is probably an easy answer, but I think it's the right one. We have to say what her government, uh, uh, we'll have to wait and see what her government presents in part. Parliament. You know, promises during a campaign is one thing. Putting proposals, you know, presenting them to Parliament is quite another. Um, and I think a lot will depend on, on you know, the situation, the, the economic situation, even in the next couple of weeks. At the moment, everything seems to have been put into parentheses because of national warning. Um, and I think in another couple of weeks, we'll, we'll see, you know, we'll have more clarity about that. Maybe we can talk about it on a future podcast, Jim. Absolutely. Well, let's move on at this point to the the other momentous change that occurred this past week, and that is the passing of Queen Elizabeth. We all saw the photographs of Queen Elizabeth last Tuesday, less than a week ago, where she was at Balmoral in a tartan uh, skirt, and she was shaking hands with the new prime minister in the drawing room at Balmoral in front of a raging fire. And she looked they appeared to be very animated. She was smiling, uh, seemed to be engaged with the new prime minister, looking forward to her future weekly meetings with the prime minister, I assume. And and of course, then the, the shocking news on Thursday that uh, that she had passed. What? How are the British people absorbing that? Because she has been, as you said, a source of stability and constancy for seventy years. How are they? How are they dealing with that? I mean, it's a huge shock. In a way, uh, you know, the Queen was 96. I think people sort of, you know, knew it, it would happen. But we'd all, we'd all sort of grown almost thinking she was eternal and she, an immortal, and she would be there forever. You know, she's adorned our, our stamps, our, our, her, you know, her initials have been on all our pieces of legislation, on our letterboxes. Her face has adorned our, our, our money, our coins. So in a way, she really has been a constant presence for the past 70 years. And the country has been through a lot uh, during that time. And and her her passing has been a huge shock. Um, and you can just see it by the people who are lining the streets to see her coffin uh, moving, because at the moment it has left Balmoral, where she, where she passed away. It's now in Edinburgh, and it will slowly make its way down to London um, and you know members of the public will also be able to to, to see that the coffin in because it will be in you know a, a grand state funeral so all of this is happening and you're seeing already thousands of people line the streets and thousands of people express their condolences so this is a, a really big change for the country and, and in a way signifies something new you know that that she was also a reminder of of the, the UK 
she you know she had old her her ways of being her ways of doing things were were a reminder of of a british past which perhaps no longer exists today liz trust the prime minister has already met with king charles i think they've had a couple of meetings i saw her this morning in edinburgh at the service for uh, for the queen at st giles cathedral what do we do we have a sense of the relationship between the new prime minister liz truss and the new king charles the no i don't we don't but at the same time you know the king is politically neutral um and it was interesting during the first speech of, of the king he he reminded people uh you know you you will have remembered that i i was passionate about certain causes because of course you know, King Charles's prince was passionate about certain causes, about the environment, for example, about uh, organic food. Um, and he made clear during his speech that he would be a king for all and that he would have to sort of step back from certain causes that he championed over the years. The, the king is politically neutral. Yes, he does meet the prime minister once a week, but it's mainly for the prime minister to update him on, on sort of, you know, the, the kind of government's work and, and, and everything else. Um, the, the, the king can kind of advise if asked by the prime minister but he can in no way kind of shape or or push or, or in any way influence the government's agenda it is the government that has the power in the uk and the government is accountable to parliament and that is where the power resides now notwithstanding the fact that the monarch doesn't exercise political power the queen over the 70 years that she was queen had seen 14 15 prime ministers and that wealth of knowledge and experience was something, I guess, that she brought to her weekly meetings with prime ministers. That is obviously something which Liz Truss is not going to have the benefit of, uh, unlike her immediate pre- predecessor or all of her predecessors. Is is that? That's true. Yes, it is true. But I guess perhaps it makes it easier. You know, you start sort of afresh with someone new. And, you know, King Charles has certainly been, I mean, I was joking the other day with a friend, it feels like he's had the longest internship ever, you know, being sort of preparing himself for this new role. And he's had years of preparation, he will be very well advised. And he probably had a number of meetings with the Queen herself in terms of how do you, you know, what it's like to be a monarch, what you should be thinking of, what are the things that you you should be saying, etc. So I think there will be some continuity, of course, between between the Queen and the King. Uh, whether or not, you know, what this does to Liz Truss, I think sometimes it's easier uh, to start afresh. Um, and, you know, in, in any way, she will also be very much, of course, advised and, and by her, her own entourage and people who will uh, in the past have, have spoken or have, you know, dealt with, with the palace. I thought it was interesting that former Prime Minister David Cameron, who was Prime Minister from 2010 to 2016, after he was Prime Minister, he said that he had met with Prince Charles on several occasions as sort of dry run audiences to give the Prince of Wales, as he then was, the sense of what it's like to meet with the Prime Minister, how to interface with the Prime Minister, the kind of questions that the monarch would ask of a Prime Minister. I thought that was rather interesting, uh, sort of uh, an an intensive intensive hands-on training process, I guess. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I hadn't heard that, but I'm not sort of entirely surprised. I think 
you know, there are a number of things that you you don't sort of know, I think, how to be king from, from the one. You need to be prepared. And, and as I said, he will have had, you know, he's been waiting for this for, for a very long time and he will have prepared himself for a very long time. So I'm not surprised that there were, if not practice sessions, at least training on, on what's expected from the monarch. Mm-hmm. Let's come back to Liz Truss's cabinet. You mentioned some of the key roles, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Foreign Secretary, the Home Secretary. Were there were there any other surprises in her appointments? Because they all seem like new faces, fresh faces uh, in her cabinet. Any surprises, any standouts, any, any potential future leaders to, uh, from among that group? That's an excellent question. I, I, I feel like predicting who's going to be the next leader is never a good thing when a prime minister has <laughs> only just started up their mandate. So I will I will probably refrain from sort of giving my views. But what is interesting is that she did take on a number of people who had also been running during the campaign for leadership. So I'm thinking of uh, Kim Badenacker, for example, who is now the trade secretary. She, uh, Kim Badenacker, had um, also, you know, wanted to, to become leader of the party in terms uh, Prime Minister. To my knowledge, she hasn't held any senior positions in government, and she now occupies, you know, this important position of, of Trade Secretary and responsible for striking new trade agreements. Um, so, in a way, I think this trust has tried to also you know, be mindful of the other MPs who would want to be Prime Minister and sort of given them an opportunity. Not all of them, of course, because uh, Rishi Sunak is not uh, part of her cabinet. It's it's, uh, it's amazing. The Conservative Party, I've always thought of being conservative, not only with a capital C, but a small c. But the, the rich diversity that Liz Truss has shown in her appointments, both gender-based and ethnic-based, was was really quite a surprise. Does Labour have a similar diverse front bench, or, uh, or are the Conservatives even more diverse than Labour? At the moment, the Conservative Party, uh, at least French bench, is, to my knowledge, more sort of diverse than, than the French bench of the Labour Party. But one thing I think it's, it is, which is interesting is that the diversity aspect wasn't didn't really come as a shock to many Britons. And I think it's because they're quite used to seeing in politics more diversity, perhaps, than there are in, in other sectors. And I mean, even Boris Johnson's government, Rishi Sunak uh, was, and there, who else? There was Sajid Javid. There were a number of people in his uh, government that were also representative of different uh, minority groups, etc. So it hasn't actually come as such a shock in the UK. It was much more of a surprise, I think, overseas. In comparison to the United States, of course, our media here would have been trumpeting the new, something like that have happened here in the United States, the media would have been all over it, trumpeting the diversity or lack of diversity. So it, it seems as though the British media have taken it more in its stride versus I think the American media, media, and given a similar set of circumstances in the United States would have been would have been more more vocal in commenting on it. Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, I think again, you know, Boris Johnson's cabinet was 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 had some diversity in it, and previous governments as well. So it's it's less of a surprise in the UK. Well, Georgina, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, do you have some closing thoughts for our listeners? These momentous changes that have taken place in the United Kingdom and where we go from here. 
I think possibly we'll have to wait and see what the government actually does. Um, in a way, a lot of analysis at the moment has been sort of speculation based on what Liz Truss had promised during the campaign. Um, but it really will be up to her and her cabinet uh, to uh, decide on, on government policy. And there are a number of problems in the UK and it will be interesting to see what they decide to do, how they respond to them, but also how a UK under Liz trust does in terms of foreign policy does it improve its relation with the eu does it uh, improve relations with european countries like france and what does it do with its very special relationship with the united states um, and also further afield i think there are a number of things that the government will want to do the question is will they have enough time within the next two years before the elections happen well i'd like to thank our guest georgina wright for her insights and perspectives on these historic events in the United Kingdom. And Georgina, how can our listeners follow you? I think the best way to follow me is probably on Twitter. Um, and my handle is at Georgina E. Wright. And Wright is W-R-I-T-H-T. I think that's the best way to get hold of me and get hold of my analysis as well. Well, Georgina, once again, thank you very much for joining us. And I will most definitely take you up on your offer to come back in a couple of months' time as the new government settles in, as the new king settles in, to give us a perspective before the end of the year as regards where the new government and the new, the new king stand. Great. I'd be delighted to. Thank you very much, Jim. And for my listeners, today's episode is number 321 as we continue to mark our second anniversary. The San Francisco Experience has listeners in 65 countries and has carried on 19 platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Pandora, and Amazon Music. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy, coming to you from San Francisco.